1: than moving forward on the unknown. Like that to me, you can put it on my tombstone. That that literally is what I've realized. So if you're not doing anything and you're overanalyzing and I've met a lot of physicians from around the world, uh, mainly calls, people who reach out. There are so many people who don't end up moving forward on something. And that's my message, move forward. And it's okay if the room is a little dark, just move forward. You know, it's, it's, it's something you're going to learn from no matter what, even if you don't invest, look into it. Um, Although I will, would encourage someone to invest something into something doesn't have to be me, but, but I'm sitting on money and I I just don't know which deal I should, I should go on. And so it's it's a, for me, it's just about educating them, but I really hope that they move forward on something um, because I know they're going to learn a board in your career in medicine. And and most people will get to some level of boredom. And all I'm saying is, I've never heard that statement when I was going into medicine. No one ever told me that. And there's nothing wrong here. It's just about being real. So by the way, prepare yourself. As you get more comfortable, as you become and you know get into a routine, you're going to start getting bored. I suggest you continue learning about different things to fulfill your buckets. I mean that that's kind of where I am in life. It's it's about making sure you're learning about things, whether it's in or outside of medicine, to create a fulfilled life. And I think being a student, medical student, resident, and going into practice again, you're constantly learning a huge amount of information. And then what happened to me was I suddenly had more I really time.
2: Don't get a lot of nutrition education in in medical school, right? <laughs> so I took a bunch of online courses um and things like that. And that's and then that's basically when I started to kind of um, changed my blog, the Foodie Physician, because at first it started off as just a fun way for me to share like recipes I was cooking and things like that. But then after a while, I was like, you know, I want to bring like more of like the medical doctor aspect in, into this blog. Um, and I started focusing on like you know recipes and ways that we can use diet to kind of prevent these diseases before they begin. And that definitely started because of just seeing the same things over and over and over again in the ER. And, and a lot of times we don't have time to talk, you know, we're in such a rush in the ER. We don't have time to talk to people and, and counsel them about things rather than just, you know, it's a lot faster to just write a prescription for someone's blood pressure or for someone's sugar or something like that. But I do try, you know, to take the time to, to talk to people about other other ways that they can prevent these I will be completely honest with you that there have been um, periods where we just were like fed up with the foodie physician and we just stopped doing it honestly for a couple of years. Cause this is a um, little more than 10 years now that we've, mm-hmm. we've had the blog, you know? Uh, like I've seen people that started years ago around the same time as me that have like like much much bigger blogs because that became their full they be, they made that their full-time job but Pete and I could never like really a hundred percent commit to that because we're we're both doctors you know obviously <laughs> and it's like one of those times was when I had Luca my son you know for for the, for those two years we actually didn't really do much at all with the blog because mm-hmm you know, I was focusing on maybe, on my baby <laughs> last year. you know, he's two and a half now. So he's, he's older, he's a little bit more independent. Um, we were like, we're, we're decided we're going to go all in again. And we're going to, we're going to try this again. Um, because I would love to ultimately, you know, if, um, make enough of an income from the blog that I can cut back in the ER a little bit more. Cause I, I feel like I'm the happiest at work when, When I'm working a a certain number of shifts (laughs) just enough so that I'm you know I get to keep up my skills um, but I'm not getting burnt out you know because with ER especially it's like um, you know there's such a high burnout. rate. That's what
3: I'm really fascinated right now about is how do we package and pass ideas so that they get reassembled as as best in the way that we want them to right because I have this idea in my head and I'm trying to pass it over to Kevin And there's a little bit of beam me up Scotty Star Trek that goes on, right? Because ideas can't just go from my brain to Kevin's brain. I have to package and pass it in a way so that when I pass it over to Kevin and he reassembles that idea in his head, it's going to match as closely as possible to the idea I'm originally trying to send him. If We treat our people right in times of change. They are more successful the initiatives deliver the results we expect and the organization grows this critical muscle uh, to adapt to what's in front of us. So I really think it's uh, mm-hmm. it's important work uh, and it delivers outcomes, so.
4: It's so important.
3: Oh yeah, and how many cycles it takes us to get on the same page and how, and that's all happening amongst everything else we're dealing with <laughs> as human beings, yeah. So this whole notion, this is what I'm most fascinated about is how do you, yeah, how do we, it's, because it's critical to get our most important ideas out there in, you know, sometimes really quick and sometimes in as high fidelity as possible. So yeah, I've started playing with both speed and fidelity as the functions that we can adjust and and touch uh, impact when we start to communicate with more empathetic
5: I'm an entrepreneur in healthcare and my dad's a farmer and my mom was a nurse. And so I'm like the perfect blend of the two of them put together (laughs) and um, have that entrepreneurial background and spirit just kind of ingrained in in who I am. Um, Healthcare has been where I've spent my entire career and um, in private practice, working in one way, shape or form in private practice, helping doctors really understand how to run their business. Doctors Um, love being autonomous and they really love treating patients and feeling that patient satisfaction come back i think one of their biggest struggles besides not really understanding the financials sometimes is when a patient's unhappy it's just soul crushing for them so what we try to do is uh make sure that their day is a little brighter and has a little bit more ease no-brainer fits on the physician side are practice small practices up to 10 15 docs and below uh specialty driven by and large are the are again the no-brainers and um, they have maybe an office manager some some billing staff but they're they don't have a cfo or a financial manager type of brain right there the sophistication of their business team isn't as expanded as it as it could be um on the dental side you know all the all all dental type practices unless they're in a large DSO are appropriate candidates i would say the small and scrappy practices are really where we can provide the biggest lift right out of the gate and as we build our mso dso structures then we'll in catch larger groups and and continue to to grow our network that way we have very uh, business savvy or at least wanting to be business savvy, innovative, a lot of doctors that have ideas. Did you know, um, It's a fun stat, six out of 10 doctors have a side hustle. <laughs> it makes sense, right? When you think about it, I mean, you guys do a lot of the same things so repetitively over and over and you get burnout, out and you need something to kind of re-energize you. And I've worked, I, I probably every doctor I've worked with has had an idea, but they can't execute on it sometimes because they're too busy seeing patients. And so we actually want to have kind of a shark tank inside of HPA so we can help them you know, realize those ideas, because a lot of them are pretty good. I mean, doctors are really smart. And so, um, anyhow, I just thought that was kind of a fun thing. And it speaks to the innovative mindset of, of private of equity. The, there's, there's studies, it's a fact, private equity is increasing the cost of healthcare, it's already, you know, not affordable for, for most people, you know, on these high deductible plans, not to mention, you don't even know what it's going to cost when you go see a doctor as a patient. And now, what kind of provider are you seeing and are they you know maximizing their billable opportunities which may not be in your best interest so it does make it a riskier proposition patients are already delaying care if they have you know those high deductible plans which isn't in your best interest as a patient it could make the condition worse or maybe it's something that's not so bad um, but these are things that we've seen for years inside of the healthcare system. This is the
6: reason why I was saying, you know, surgery is surgery just a placebo because people get better anyway. Uh, But I should point out that it's not, it's not due to the placebo effect of surgery. And this is where it gets confusing because placebos by definition don't have an effect, Um, but it's really due to the natural history of the condition. You know, that's what would have happened to them if you hadn't have done anything. And then surgeons were saying, well, we don't really do the surgery for the torn meniscus. We do it for the mechanical symptoms, you know. And then another study came out and showed that if, if the patients had mechanical symptoms, there was no difference, or if anything, the uh, placebo group did a little better than the actual surgery. And now there's evidence that surgery to take out a torn meniscus Probably accelerates the rate of degeneration in your knee and accelerates the risk of you needing a knee replacement later, which makes perfect yeah. sense. Third of healthcare is ineffective, and another ten percent of what we do in healthcare activity is actually harmful. You know, between one hundred fifty to four hundred thousand people in the US has been estimated uh, will die from medical interventions each year. People just ignore these numbers. I mean, these are massive numbers uh, of harm and it's written off as the price we pay for all the good that modern medicine does. And so we put this in perspective because modern medicine isn't as good as we think it is, and it's a lot more harmful than we think it is. And um, so we've got some great examples of where uh, people kind of get that wrong. And there's been studies looking at uh, physicians, reviewing all the literature where the estimate of benefit and the estimate of harm given by physicians is put up against the the actual evidence and it's fairly consistent that physicians overestimate the benefit and underestimate the harms of
7: medical schools are setting a standard um when people walk into their door you want your professors the people interviewing to reflect the culture of your institution and i think for medical students it's a great opportunity to demonstrate that you're mature and confident these are two words that i use for Aspiring pre meds and medical students who want to go into residency, you want to present yourself as mature and confident so that you look like you belong, so that you feel like you belong when you walk into these um, medical institutions, medical schools that are oftentimes traditional. And so, in the second chapter of my book, I go to great length to describe what a great medical school interview looks like from. When you set foot on campus, the the way you call the receptionist at the medical school to um, what to wear when you walk on campus. The fact that we
4: wouldn't respect them because they're doing housekeepers or being housekeeping is ridiculous. And maybe some people potentially would, but then it's up to the system to support them in such a ways. But to blur it and say, well, we need to have a long white coat on everybody so they can pretend to be doctors in order for they to, to get respect, that's an institutional problem, not a, um, what I would say the professional aspect of it and it, in it, in, i I do see it as a way that there's this, this creep to intentionally blur the lines in such a way to confuse patients in this way that people have these false egos that need to be like supported in some way, but
7: yeah, yeah. Well, this is, this is a much of the reason why I wrote this, because again, these are big topics that as medical students, Uh, residents physicians we kind of stumble through these without you know at least some guidelines of how to think about this how to how to reflect on these issues and you know these are some of the big reasons I wrote this book because I encountered these frustrating situations pretty much at every step of training there's something that I would peel back about it for
8: only five apartment complexes and then I was still shopping for number six when my wife stepped up and says now wait a minute we, we have enough property to take care of us for the rest of our life. Why are you still shopping for more? And this came back to some place where my wife saved me when I was a resident. And I was reminiscing of that conversation when she said this. I came home, a second year resident. I got my license and they told me I could moonlight for $100 an hour in the ER. And I was so excited because I, I had a recently calculated. I was making $3 an hour as a resident. And they were going to pay me $100 an hour, but I was excited about the $100 an hour. So then she says to me, so why would you go to work to earn money we don't need with time you don't have? And I never thought of it like that. And she was right. the, uh, one of the ideal people to own timeshares is physicians, and they should be doing this. They should be having this great experience like I'm having, and so hopefully people will find this thing and learn the truth about timeshares, and then they can make their decision as an informed decision, uh, like I would do with when I was doing surgery. You need informed consent. Unfortunately, most people are only getting a bunch of people telling them what's wrong with timeshares, uh, and most of that's actually wrong anyway. And no one was telling them what's right, and so now they can see both sides and they can decide for themselves. You've had such positive experience with timeshares, but what I also really liked
4: about the book it was very balanced, because you even have in the appendices uh, a list of questions that you should ask yourself, or your spouse, or whoever's involved with this purchase, and and a criteria, and 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 you're very if you say no on these. You probably shouldn't or you, you really should not buy a timeshare or or, or what was time- your favorite part about writing this book?
9: I love I, I love all of this stuff where it's like the evidence is so glaring and we just don't know it. Right. Like desire discrepancy in a couple is normal like you just change people's lives by like normalizing their experience right like these like huge truth bombs that are like so obvious but everybody's so shameful about it. like 70 percent of women won't have an orgasm with putting something in their vagina like glaring statistic people don't know it and then you tell a couple that and they're like oh well yeah okay that makes sense that's how that's how we are <laughs> right and so it's like it's really the fun the like the big obvious things that like I truly believe people just need a little bit of education. You give them mm-hmm. a little bit of education and they do pretty darn well in the bedroom then. Mm-hmm. and They don't feel like isolated and shameful and like that they're the broken one. And, you know, when you think about our sex education in this country or the world, it comes at a time like we're not adults. I, I mean, I would say this. I would say communicate with your partner. Mm-hmm. And if you are unpartnered, communicate with yourself. Mm-hmm. Why? Why do you want to spice it up? What's, what's not great right now? What could be better? What could be interesting for you? What does your partner want? You have all the answers you need if you could just communicate about the damn problem. That and then I would say the clitoral suction air device things are truly God's gift to female orgasms. Okay, so explain this. If you're going to buy buy anything, go get one of those things. Okay, explain for the viewers and me. Okay. So we've got your, (laughs) we've got your old school vibrators and dildos. They're usually phallic in nature. They go into the vagina. They're rumbly. That's great. There are these new kids on the block called, I call them clitoral suction devices, but some people will call them air pulse, airwave pulsation things. They're basically like, they, they kind of like vibrate on the clitoris. So nothing goes, you can get ones that where things go in the vagina, but like, it's really the clitoral head gets all the attention and it's, it's it's insane I'm like, i like i literally need to find the person who invented these and just have them on my podcast and be like tell me everything <laughs> <laughs> i'm fascinated um we vibe makes one we vibe melt is amazing the womanizer is another one a, a lot of companies have them now because they're hmm. freaking amazing hmm. but if we're looking at orgasmic equality and again back up for the people in the back orgasm is just one marker of pleasure it's it, once you make it a goal then it's goal centric and it might fail like you know like but let's decide that orgasm is w- what we want to be equal on um really prioritizing the clitoris because the clitoris is the penis and i love the 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 metaphor of like a guy's scrotum and he's like well yeah it's kind of maybe that's nice but like it's not going to get me off it's like it's really close but it's not the thing that's going to give him an orgasm. And that's how the vagina is. It's like, it's really close, but mm-hmm. it's not the thing that's usually going to give her you an orgasm.
4: So many companies, it's not just healthcare, that abuse their employees, that um, you know, put onerous work restrictions or, or micromanage them. You know, instead of letting them do their job that they can do well, for whatever reason, they want to butt in. And try to, because they're like, well, they're doing their job, but you know, if they can do their job without me, where's my role as the manager. So I must micromanage them to now justify that my existence here, because they're doing so well without me, which is like the stupidest thing Mm. that happened, but it occurs all the time. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, just get out of it. If you, to engage people, you have to be worthy of engagement. And if they're not engaged, the first person you need to look at, if you're a corporation, the first, the first because since corporations are individuals now, according to the Supreme Court, the first person you need to look at it is yourself. Why aren't they engaged? Not, oh my God, these people are bad. They're quiet quitting. They're only doing their job as described. Screw you. You This know.
0: body is amazingly adaptable. And if you don't believe that and you don't trust the process, you probably will never believe that. And you are going to go downhill for the rest of your life. I hate to be that brutal about it, But if you don't embrace it, if you don't trust it, if you don't try it to change the belief that you have, because if you had the belief, I almost guarantee you, you will be doing the things of that process to keep you away from all the troubles and downhill spirals that most uh, human beings, especially in America, you know, will go down. Um, Now, granted, some bad things can happen, uh, you know, you could come paralyzed or, you know, there are definitely some challenges that can make it hard. But even people who are paralyzed do more than people I know that have a full capacity body that they are making all excuses in the world and their life is one step away from death. And yet this person who has no function in the lower part of their body is living their life to the fullest, you know, who's happier. I don't know, but functionality wise, like it depends on you and what information you give it and what you do with it. So I, I just, uh, I'm always encouraging people to challenge themselves because your body's adaptable. That is essentially all I do whether it's mental, physical, doesn't matter, it's part of your being, it's part of your organism and if you don't think things are influencing you, um, physical, mental, whatever, you're completely tricking yourself um into a belief that's not supported by science.
10: And um uh, my wife has been to Australia before as well. In 1998, uh, we went to Australia for a three-week holiday, which was quite short. And that's why I knew that three weeks is not enough um, to to fly from Europe to Australia because uh, mm-hmm. it's just the flight. The flight is killing you. Um, just the, the the amount of time you need. It's a 24-hour in the airplane. You know? Hello, uh, and uh, <laughs> that's what...
0: they want your attention.
10: <laughs> the Yes. Uh, so anyway. So we, ca- we came to Australia in 2008 for a holiday for four weeks, and that that four week holiday sort of, you know, led to the idea to move to Australia and, um, uh, yeah, to live here. And um, so after after that that holiday, where we have been asked, uh, "Oh, you like Australia? That's your fourth to the country." Um, uh, if you're a doctor. Why don't you stay with your doctors? And it turned out there was a huge, um, and still is, a specialist shortage uh, in that's Australia. Another difference, um, what I found out between Germany and Australia is that the nurses in Australia are far more powerful than in Germany. In Germany, if I say this patient can go to the ward, the patient goes to the ward. That's it. End of story. Because that's my decision. Because I'm the doctor. Whereas in Australia, the nurse says, I'm not accepting this patient because of X, Y, Z she's not accepting the patient, which means I can't set the patient to the ward. I have to fix that first so that the nurse is happy. If that would happen in Germany, that nurse would be standing in front of the medical director the next day and would get her papers handed over. So find a new job. Whereas in Australia, uh, if I make a big fuss, I would stand in front of the medical director getting told off.
4: <laughs> You're never supposed to turn it off. Oh, yeah. Uh- but but this is so. This is I meant to think. I was thinking about this earlier, and um, I forgot to ask it. But I, it, the excuse, like the point of excuse, and so I like wondering, do you think things are happening now that people are using the the narrative of what's happening in the economy as an excuse to do things that they wanted to do that were potential potentially politically unwise before? And what I what I'm what I'm bringing up is there was, I remember reading something about when nine eleven occurred. Like the the airlines were so, they had so much staff and they had all these all these pensions they were trying to pay. And so ultimately they used that to, to kind of push, you know, like fire a bunch of people and get rid of, of, yes. of a lot of their older employees because it became, it was a point of excuse. They could blame it on 9 when it was really something that they were sort of waiting to do and they couldn't figure out how to do it.
11: Yes, absolutely. Um, Okay, And so, and and that's the whole point of having to have independent sources of income, right? Mm-hmm. None of us should be dependent on one source of income in our lives, because unless you are the owner of the company, you're always at someone else's mercy. And even as us as physicians, while we do have unemployment by, by choice, our working conditions, we do not control. And so someone can lay us off, someone can make our work conditions so uh, egregious that we then have to... Go somewhere else, and that may mean you actually have to uproot your family again. You can, you can, we can always get a job, but it may not be in the place we actually want it to be, right? And so, with this, inflation was really COVID and inflation were really the two big drivers of that. Um, so if you think about it in the automobile industry, um, they were able to cut production, and so now they don't lose money on cars, you don't see quite as many deals. Now, the used car market is cratering right now because people are having some issues there. Um, but margins have, have fattened in almost every industry because because mm-hmm. COVID and supply chain disruption issues allowed companies to become more lean and become more efficient. The flip side of that is this. There are going to be a lot more people starting their own businesses, doing their own things, and going out into the world at, from an autonomy standpoint. right? And so that's the whole thing about, about the Chinese character opportunity and crisis being the same thing. So what's one person's crisis, another person's opportunity. And if you take the quote unquote morality out of it, right,
9: mm-hmm.
11: you just have to understand that you have to always be prepared. And that's the one thing I think our society, because we are relatively fat and happy, most of us, um, is that we have not had since the Great Depression a real, maybe maybe World War II um, with rationing and, and the draft, but we've had a generation and a half of people who've never had to sacrifice for anything specifically as a, as, a, as a unifying national thing. right? We should have had to have it after the dot-com, but we should have had to have it after the mortgage meltdown, but the Fed papered that over by bumping up the balance sheet. And so essentially what the Fed has been trying to do is create these quote-unquote soft landings, but all they do is keep blowing up larger and larger bubbles that will cause the landing to ultimately be harder and harder when it actually does come. Right? The beauty of capitalism is its creative destruction. If you let it work, you will bounce back fairly quickly. People will get laid off, new industries will be created, those people will then get rehired. But when you try to prolong it and you create these zombie companies that essentially aren't profitable, aren't really doing anything and are just there, but because they have political favor, they're allowed to continue to exist. That sucks up good capital that could have gone to newer, more innovative places from that standpoint. And that's really, I would say is really the sin of having a central bank in that kind of way is that it's created a level of complacency in our citizenry with the understanding that the government is going to kind of be there, kind of maybe, but you really have to stand on your own too. You have to create your own safety net and the government might be a backstop. The problem in our society is too many people think the government is the backstop in any number of things. And we are not as self-reliant as we should be as a people, which then leads us down the pathways of demagogues, and people who can just, on a political standpoint, cater to your fears because you need that big brother or big sister because you know if you don't have it, your whole world will fall apart. Whereas if you had your own thing going, you're like, yeah, I don't really need that from you. Go on, do it. you sound crazy. We're gonna keep moving forward in, in what makes sense. And so that's always the fear of having these countries that have these central banks that come in is it can lead to demagogues very, very easily when times get tough, but the times were literally created, became tough because of this poli- the monetary policy that was been followed. And that's the probably historical arc that is never taught in history. But when you read alternative history books that come from a financial standpoint, you can look at the rise of the Prussian and Empire. You can look at the rise of Hitler. All of those things were economically driven issues.
3: Mm-hmm.
11: The Bolsheviks in, in, the, in the Soviet Union, right? And so once you understand it from an economic standpoint, you will understand many of the social ills and the ills that human beings have against one another and, and, and against groups.
4: Because, they, because that's like crony capitalism versus true capitalism. And we have a very cronyistic. Yeah,
11: free market, free market economy, we, because capitalism has been so pilloried. We just call it free market economies now
9: mm-hmm. because
11: people have an idea what capitalism is. But when they actually go read the dictionary, like, oh, okay, well, actually, capitalism isn't bad. Exactly. But. C- crony capitalism and and the only reason that happened again, all the root of all evil in our societies is is our central banks, right? Because you can't have war without central banks, mm-hmm. because you can't overspend for armaments, right? If you're on a gold standard, nobody's going to give you their gold so you can build bombs that you can that essentially explode and, and get destroyed, right? So you can't finance wars unless you can overspend your monetary supply, right? Mm-hmm. There are so many evils. That like there's a reason why every Fed Reserve Chairman and Treasury Chairman comes from Goldman Sachs or Citigroup or because those are the people who own the Federal Reserve and they go right into the administration they come right back out of the administration right it's a complete revolving door that's not by by happenstance if you yeah. go back and read the founding of the Federal Reserve and founding of the SEC. And all those things, it's the same cadre of people and bankers who did all. Thank
0: you for joining us today on the Change Physician podcast. If you've enjoyed this episode, please let us know by going to thechangephysician.com. And while you're there, be sure to check out the free book giveaways, guides, and other physician resources available to you simply by joining the community at thechangephysician.com.